Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare and your host for this podcast. Necessity is the mother of invention. It's a common proverb. In fact, its earliest recorded instance was in Aesop's Fables, The Crow and the Pitcher, from mid-6th century BCE. But it's common because it's true. Without invention and its close cousin innovation, our society would come to a literal standstill. An article on the Insider website way back in 2012 said it best. Invention is the creation of a product or introduction of a process for the first time. Thomas Edison was an inventor. Innovation happens when someone improves on or makes a significant contribution to something that has already been invented. Steve Jobs is an innovator. Thanks, Insider. But whether you're an inventor, an innovator, or just someone who benefits from these new creations, you've probably wondered where all these ideas come from and how in the world do they get commercialized? That's why I'm so excited to welcome Leslie Solomon to today's episode of Definitively Speaking. Leslie's a venture chair at Redesign Health. Her job is to literally create new healthcare companies that address the most pressing problems in the US healthcare system. I love the aspirational nature of Redesign Health's website. So I'm gonna quote him here because I don't think I could do it justice by trying to put it in my own words. Redesign Health is powering a new kind of innovation in healthcare. We ideate, build, and scale solutions to solve the biggest health challenges and rapidly advance human health. Our model is unlike anything else out there. We are not a venture capital firm, incubator, or accelerator. Instead, we ideate, build, and scale companies based on our research, relationships, and diligence. I'll ask Leslie to drill down and expand on that definition in just a few moments, so stick with me. Before she joined Redesign Health, Leslie had an equally cool job where she was the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's first SVP and Chief Innovation Officer. At Dana-Farber, Leslie led a team focused on commercializing Dana-Farber's science and technology and working with industry, academic, and investment partners to accelerate the pace of getting the work to patients. She focused on developing innovative models for partnerships to sustain the Institute's research funding and created new ways to expand the reach of Dana-Farber's clinical care. Previously, she served as the executive director of Brigham and Women's Hospital's Digital Innovation Hub and as director of strategy innovation and the Brigham Research Institute. So you might say Leslie has just a bit of experience with healthcare innovation. Leslie, welcome to Definitively Speaking. We're so happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Justin. All right, let's get started. That was quite a long introduction, but it was really, I wanted to give people a feeling of what Redesign Health is. But I shared the website language. Could you expand on it? What is Redesign Health? Absolutely. Uh, We are a team of over 200 people that build, launch, and grow companies tackling some of healthcare's biggest challenges. We generate new business ideas, like you said. We work with exceptional founders, so bring on CEOs and founding teams and partners to bring those businesses to market. We accelerate each company's growth through both internal tools and technologies. Uh, We've launched over 50 companies since 2018. And because of that, we have an innate understanding of what's required to quickly build 
and scale successful healthcare businesses and creating a more connected, accessible experience for everyone. All right. So there's a lot there. We're going to dig into some of that stuff. I'll start with the most interesting thing you said there. What's an innate understanding, right? That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, it's in our DNA, right? We've now built so many companies in such a short time and in really interesting markets that we have a really good sense of what's going to work, what's not going to work, and what we need to do uh, to make it work. All right. So let's spill the company secret. What's going to work and what's not going to work in the healthcare? Yeah, I don't think that's the uh, that's <laughs> the company secret. If we had that, we'd be uh, doing even more now. But there's there's a lot of different pieces that go into it. And obviously, as you know, you need to have a real market need, a real patient need, provider need. So what is the what is the opportunity? What is missing? What is the white space that needs to be filled? And why can we do it better than others who have maybe tried? And how did Redesign get started? So Brett Shaheen is our CEO, and he started it in 2018. He was a hedge fund investor and had decided that he wanted to start up a company in healthcare. So with some friends, started up a company. I believe it was Candid, the competitor to Invisalign. And I think what they realized and what Brett realized was how hard (laughs) healthcare was and also how hard it is to start up a company. And he learned that so many companies, I think it was 80% of companies in healthcare, never startups, never make it to their Series A, which he thought was ridiculous and should be able to be addressed. And so he built Redesign with that goal of having more startups, more of these innovation and innovative companies in healthcare make it to their Series A. Because once you made it to Series A, you have more of a likelihood of success and scaling. And so when you say Redesign started 50 companies, did all 50 of them get to their Series A? So no, because, um, you know, one of them was was launched last week and that would be <laughs> super crazy fast. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to guess right now, I think about nine companies have made it to their Series A. We started, like I said, in 2018, and we've slowly increased the number of companies that we launch every year. So there's one or two that have raised a Series B. There's a bunch that have raised a Series A. There's many that have raised a C2 round, um, and obviously a lot of them um, that have, that are still in that seed stage. Got it. So you're almost kind of at that 20% then. If you got, you know, call it nine or 10 out of 50, you're kind of going right with that industry. Interesting. So- What's a venture chair? I'd never heard of that job title before I heard you got it. Yeah, it's a really cool title. And I have Kira Wampler to thank for it. She is uh, my boss, the head of startup success at Redesign. Um, but she was the first venture chair. She created the she created the title. She created the job. And basically what venture chairs do is help through each stage that a concept goes through at Redesign. A venture chair gets involved at every stage of the concept. Once there's a an idea, a concept with a business model, with some diligence, with some research, a venture chair, and we have 11 of them at Redesign, including myself, have decades of experience, and we'll provide more hands-on strategic um, and operational guidance, again, all the way from idea through to exit, as well as 
anything in between. And so I'll spend a lot of my time right now. I'm working on an early stage concept where we're meeting with experts. We're exploring some early partnerships. This is a concept that hasn't been funded yet. So I now as a venture chair, I'm getting involved and looking at all the different pieces that we need to get it approved for funding. Then once it gets approved, hopefully, but once as we get closer to getting approved, I will then lead the effort in partnership with someone on my talent team to hire a CEO. The goal is once the CEO is in seat, I move into a board role. And once I'm in that board role, I partner with the CEO as a advisor and board member, kind of a glorified board member to help them get what they need, either from redesign, the market, from my knowledge, from my contacts, and support them as a partner as they grow their company. So you're almost like a shepherd. You shepherd the company along. I totally agree. That's what I called myself in the early (laughs) days here. I said, I am a shepherd. Excellent. As long as they're not calling your company sheep, because there's a whole other thing that we'd have problems no, with. But yeah, definitely not. I got you. And so how in the world does someone become a venture chair? Well, there has to be an open spot to okay. be a venture chair. Uh, are you throwing your hat in the ring? No, not right now. I'm very happy here at DH. <laughs> Especially if my boss is listening. I love my job. Yes. <laughs> Kidding. Um, no. So as long as there's a spot open, which there aren't any right now, you interview. And uh, I think the main thing that we look for is someone who has had uh, successes and failures and have learned from those successes and failures and have been part of a startup ecosystem. Um, So as an example, I had been at like at least four or five startups before I joined Redesign Health. That was before all the stuff that you said in the beginning about me on the academic medicine side. And who also have a, an understanding of the healthcare space and where we're going. There are venture chairs who also come with other experiences in startups that may not be from healthcare, but that bring you know deep knowledge about a, a specific space. So I'd say experience and humility is important and a willingness to partner. Excellent. So you said that Redesign has started roughly 50 companies. How many of those have you been involved in? So I have launched six companies at Redesign. Uh, There were a whole bunch more that I worked on, not a whole bunch, but call it three or four more that I worked on that that never got funded. So I worked on them at this early diligence phase. And then when we pitch them, they uh, they didn't get greenlit, which is okay. That's important, right? Because we only want to move things forward that we think can be successful and will have an impact. So um, yeah, six companies. I'm going to ask you an unfair question, which I love to ask. Mm-hmm. I know you love all your children equally. Which of the six is your favorite and why? <laughs> uh, I can't do that. Um all right. If any of my CEOs or teams are listening, I love you all the same. But I did have um, a board meeting today for Iron Health, and I'm actually wearing an Iron Health uh, fleece right now. So they are top of mind. Iron Health was the first company that I really took through from beginning to today. So worked on that earliest stage and spent a lot of time developing the concept, really working through it with the team at Redesign before we were in a place that we wanted to to pitch it and, and get a green light. And so what does Iron Health do and what's so exciting about it? 
Yeah. So Iron Health is a women's health company. And the important thing about Iron Health and the thing that was really important to me about it was given the amount of time that I'd spent in healthcare and academic medicine, it was important to me to innovate inside the healthcare ecosystem, not as a standalone outside of it. And so what we're doing at Iron is partnering with existing OBGYNs to extend the care they're able to provide for their patients. So many women have an OBGYN, but have chosen or just aren't, don't have a PCP, a primary care provider. So Iron Health in particular, we wanted to make sure that women were being supported through primary care, hypertension management, behavioral health, menopause care. And so what we created is a virtual care partner to an existing OBGYN clinic that now allows OBGYNs to be an OBGYN and refer care for behavioral health and all of the other things that I mentioned to Iron Health as a partner so we can support the women in their practice to get the care they need. Interesting. Do you have any sort of percentage of the number of women who have an OBGYN but not a primary care that you came through as you're researching the company? Yeah, I do. I do have that number and it's so far back in my head that I don't, <laughs> there's no way that I'm going to come up with it now, but it was enough that we wanted to build a company around it. The two things that stood out to us the most was that a majority of the women that we interviewed, and we did a survey of 10,000 women, and a majority of them said that they had OBGYNs, but not primary care providers. So that's the one data point majority. So I don't, I, so you take that for what it is. And then the second piece that stood out for us is that OBGYNs were burnt out, like all doctors are these days, but they were burnt out because they were being asked to be a three-in-one provider. So they were being asked to be primary care, OBGYN, and behavioral health, and they just didn't feel like they were giving their patients the care they wanted. And so that's what we're doing now is partnering with, we're now in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Michigan, and a lot more states to come. So it's, it's really exciting to see it working. That's actually really cool. And I might not be very good at math, but I do think majority means more than 50%. So I think that's a good, compelling market size. I like that. I like that a lot. So you said something interesting, though, about Iron Health I want to come back to. And you said you yeah. felt it was important to innovate inside the healthcare ecosystem. Yeah. Regular listeners of our podcast will think back a couple episodes ago when we had Sasha, our favorite surgeon, on. And Sasha was advocating that it was important to uh, innovate outside the healthcare ecosystem. In fact, he was very passionate about it. So I want to ask you, why is it so important to innovate inside the healthcare ecosystem? Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that one. So I'm going to get really passionate about why it's important to innovate inside. You know, after working for eight years at Brigham and Women's Hospital and four years at Dana-Farber, the healthcare is set up a certain way. We realize in the United States that it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. There's so much that needs to be done. But because of all of the different ways that incentives are, you know, created and payments are done and operations, all the different elements that exist out there that make healthcare as complex as it is, that if you're going to innovate outside of the system, you're not connecting in with the day-to-day -day of how healthcare works. So my goal in building the companies that I work on at Redesign is that we have to recognize 
that this is how healthcare is delivered in this country right now. And by partnering in, inside, that we can start to create opportunities to move things outside, potentially, right? So like with Iron Health, we're using existing OBGYNs, but our virtual care is not inside the system. And it's through those partnerships, through those attachments uh, that we create innovation and we help the inside of healthcare see that there are ways to change. There are new ways of doing things. And that's been the most fun thing for me to see is to be having conversations with people deep in the healthcare space on the provider side who, you know, they come to the meeting and they're like, this is not my expertise. I do not know about technology. I don't know anything about the uh, virtual care. What I do know is I'm not giving my patients the care that they deserve. And if you can help me do that, then please do. But that's where patients get their care now. So why would we do something outside? I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. Interesting. I'm not going to sit here and parrot back and debate Sasha. Sasha's perspective was that it was so broken and there are so many competing interests and self-preserving interests inside the healthcare ecosystem that you could never fix it from the inside. But he's a little bit of an iconoclast. I think that's the exact same reason why you have to fix it from the inside, because there are so many, you know, people who, you know, are holding on to the way it was that you have to tie, you have to bring those people along with you. All right. Well, note to Joel, our producer, that maybe we'll have Leslie and Sasha on for a debate sometime. And I'll just love sit it. here and moderate inside versus <laughs> outside the healthcare ecosystem. I love, love it. All right. So. I got to, I'm really obsessed, like, and really interested, like, in this whole ideation and how you're coming up with the ideas for the company. So, I mean, there are literally thousands of problems in our healthcare ecosystem here in the United States. How do you decide which ones to pursue? Do you have an investment thesis? Is there an area that you're passionate about? How does that work? Yeah. So it's really interesting because just me, so I'm one of 11 venture chairs and my companies range from, like I said, women's health to payment intelligence, clinical trials. Uh, longitudinal care management, pharmacy-enabled care, and employer health benefits. So, like that is like every, almost every point of healthcare that you could imagine. So, I don't, I don't think we have a specific thesis. What is really important is that there's either white space or that we feel strongly that the concept that we create that eventually will become a company can do it better than the way it's being done today. And that's one of the most important things. Like your friend Sasha said, there's so many things that are broken that if that there's just an endless list of opportunities to to improve it. And we just need to find a big enough market for each of those concepts that it makes sense from an investment perspective uh, and from a scaling perspective to make it work. So What's the most successful company that Redesign has started? Have you guys got anybody like acquired yet or IPO'd or just kind of, how do you define success even? What's like, tell yeah. about that. Yeah. So we have had a couple of exits and I can go into some of those in a minute, but success for us, and it's funny because every once in a while I'll talk to a CEO candidate and I do spend a lot of time interviewing Um you know, or I'll talk to others in the ecosystem and they say, what, you know, what's your exit plan? And it's really important to not start with an exit plan, right? It's important, especially in healthcare, that we start with a goal to impact care. And that impact could be seen across any 
of the stakeholders. It could be in the payer side, it could be on the provider side, on the employer side, on the patient side, right? There's in pharma now we're starting to work with, with the clinical trials company. So it's important that we start with what is the impact that we want to have? And we want to grow a company that is going to continue to have that impact and scale it over time. If we create a really great company that does amazing things and makes money, then it's successful in my mind. Okay. So then you said you had some of the companies that did exit. Talk to me about one or two of them that it gets you excited. So uh, one of our first companies was a digital hearing aid company called uh, Lively. And Lively was exited in uh, 2021, December of 2021. Good time to get out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No kidding, right? But so that was really exciting for us. And it was exciting because I had just joined in July of 2021. So to see, you know, after being there for six months, the company was already was already exiting. That's cool. That's cool. So let's talk about the flip side. How do you know when a company's not going to make it? And what's that process like? Yeah, look, we're tackling innovation at scale, which is hard enough. But on top of that, we're doing it in healthcare with, as I said earlier, all the complex relationships, incentives, regulatory structures that come with it. There will be companies that, despite all the work we and the founding team does, may not make it. That's just the reality. But here's what we do from day one in terms of governance to make sure that doesn't happen. And from day one, so like I said, as soon as the CEO is in seat, I move into a board role. And so we have board meetings as soon, three months in. As soon as the CEO is in seat for three months, we have monthly board meetings where we meet with our CEOs and strategy and finance team and any members of their team. And we really spend time looking and learning from operating companies that have gone before them. And that's actually one of the coolest things that I love about Redesign Health is because we've had 50 companies, we have so much that we have learned from every company that we've launched. And so as we've gone from 2021 to 22, and now in 2023, we have had a lot of learnings that have, you know, we've tweaked and changed our model along the way. So that's what we do on our side. The other thing that's fascinating about having 50 companies is you know how 50 CEOs in seat. And we've created an amazing community of CEOs who now just connect together, you know, kind of leaving redesign out. They can have communications and they can talk about, you know, what did you do when this happened? And, you know, everyone says being a CEO is one of the loneliest jobs. And what we've done at redesign is make that to be not the case. Got it. So that's really interesting that you've kind of got that community of CEOs. And I think that's a really, I have heard my boss, who's the CEO, says it is a lonely job and he's, he's an other CEO peer. So I like that about what you guys are doing there. So, but I'm sure, you know, as you said, not every company makes it. You do innovation at scale. Somebody is bound or some company is bound to fail. Is there a company that you guys started that didn't make it that you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe this company didn't succeed. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I'm going to present you a story of oh, we one like that's stories. personally important to me. So I'm a mom of a son with severe food allergies and asthma. Um, as a result of that, I founded something, a nonprofit outside of Redesign many years ago called uh, FOSI, the Food Allergy Science Initiative. 
And I've been passionate, as anyone who knows me can speak to, I've been passionate about food allergies for a long time. So when I came into redesign, I said, we're going to start a food allergy company. And they were like, okay, like, great, you know, put it into the hopper. We'll go through it. We'll, we'll visit it. And so I'll make the long story short, which is I'm now on my third allergy concept at redesign. So the first one was not the right one. The second one was really amazing. And I was really excited about it, except it just, we didn't have the business model that would make, would make money. And so now I have a concept, which is super early stage. So I can't tell you too much about it, but I'm finally working on one that, you know, fingers crossed within a month will be funded and it's in the allergy care space and um, not just food allergy. So food allergy, environmental asthma, but I'm really excited that, you know, and it's really about just like sticking to your goals and knowing when to cut, right? We knew those first two times around that it wasn't going to be a business that was successful. I was bummed out. Like everyone felt bad because they knew how badly I wanted to create this allergy company, but you can't just build it to build it. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of founders out there in the world, you know, had I been a founder out on my own, not inside redesign, you know, I might've started that and it could have been a total failure could have taken a lot of money and time and effort and emotion and it, like three years in would have would have failed. And so what's really important about the redesign process is that we don't just start any company in healthcare. We don't just start company because we're excited about it. And there's a lot of founders out there who say, I'm so passionate about this. And here are you know 10 other people who are passionate about this too. So I think there's a market and I'm going to build a company here and, and raise money. Now, maybe in 2021, that was okay. (laughs) But uh, now, you know, you can't just start a company because you think that there's a need. You need to actually do the diligence and the research and the stakeholder interviews to realize that there's a need. And that that need has to be matched with a business model that will sustain that as a business and scale over time. So that, so anyway, kind of answering your question, but not a hundred percent, but it's, the ones that got away twice and now, you know, third time's a charm. And I'm really feeling, I'm feeling good about this one. I, I like the iterative nature of innovation. You're not always going to get it right the first time and, yeah. and that's okay. Right. But I like the fact you keep trying and, you know, first one to fill hers, the second one, wrong business model. Hopefully your third one will be successful. I kind of like yeah. that. Yeah. We'll, we'll have you back and come talk to us about it. Okay. Talk to me about more broadly, what areas of healthcare excite you today? What do you look at and go, oh my God, we should, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about starting a company, this area is just totally broken or, you know, what's rife, where the dynamics are changing, what gets you out of bed in the morning you think about healthcare innovation right now? Yeah. I mean, healthcare in general gets me excited because I love taking my skills and knowledge to do things that are going to impact people's lives. But I can't say like, you know, I would be super excited about just any company in healthcare. You know, there's a lot in pharma um, and biotech that's not totally working. Obviously, there's a lot of expenses there, and there will be ways to cut down on those expenses as we innovate in that space. Uh, obviously, I have to say AI, but AI is not a space for me. AI is a tool, and so you still have to solve real healthcare problems with real services and models and platforms using technologies. I 
do see that the healthcare employment space, like people, every everyone I talk to at a health provider, at healthcare systems, they're just uh, struggling with talent. And so how can you think about supporting providers with a new model for talent? That's an area that I would get excited about. And then longevity, right? Longevity. I don't know if I have time to work on that one, but hopefully there's a lot of people out there working on it that are going to help me because I'm getting up there. <laughs> don't start worrying about your own longevity just yet. I'll tell you one yeah. that, that, that excites me. I'd love your thoughts on it. As I've got this theory around that we don't understand the true costs of healthcare because it, you and I as individuals travel longitudinally through the healthcare system, but mm-hmm. healthcare is delivered vertically and you you track costs vertically. And so you think about you track the cost of your care based on the location of the doctor that you're seeing. But if you're a cancer patient, the only person who really understands the cost to treat you is your insurance company who's paid all the bills, but they're paying what's actually billed, not the actual cost of the treating of you. And so I'm kind of really obsessed like this longitudinal and vertical kind of transfixation, if you will. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of my company's uh, anomaly is in the payment intelligence space. And we are working on the uh, prediction of claims denials, right? And so we're working with providers to help them know what claims are going to be denied uh, before they're denied. That's kind of the first product in a whole suite. And to your point, One of the biggest challenges that needs to be solved out there is the fact that people aren't speaking to each other. What's shocking to me is that healthcare providers and payers, they talk like once a year when they're negotiating their rates for the upcoming year. There's no communication about, hey, what if we did this? Or what if we worked on this? Or what if we changed this? Or what if we actually shared knowledge and allowed each other to benefit and grow from that knowledge? And the problem is the incentives are not aligned, right? My point is, I I would love that. I would love if you could create... One of the things I've always said, actually, and I would love your perspective on this, and maybe it's kind of in the same space, is I would love to be able to start a new hospital today, like from scratch, and like in the middle of nowhere, and like have to figure out how it's going to sustain itself by, you know, you know, maybe it becomes a pay provider, right? How does it buy drugs, you know, to give to its patients? And how does it engage its patients? And if you could create it from scratch, say, what would it look like? And how would you do things differently? And maybe that will get you to the answer that you're looking for around around this. That is a massive capital investment, I will tell I you. Way beyond my level of capital to be able to fund. I think Geisinger's kind of trying to do that a little bit. They're in the yeah. middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, but they've got a long legacy behind them. Well, so it's interesting. You went right to capital, right? But like maybe this new hospital isn't actually a hospital at all. Maybe there's no building, ah. right? Maybe it's just a virtual hospital that is you know, taking care of its patients and managing, right? So so you have to like remove all the barriers of like what you thought before and then figure out like, if I was going to create a virtual hospital today, what would that look like? And who would I need to partner with, right? You need to partner with the surgery center because you can't do surgery if you're virtual. Interesting. I almost want to make some sort of joke about redesigning health, but that's probably too on the nose. Uh, (laughs) So I apologize for that joke. I can't help myself. 
So last question for you here. We started off the conversation talking about invention and innovation, and you've got a lot of experiences. Mm -hmm. What do you think the biggest roadblocks to innovation are and how do people overcome them or how do we overcome them? That's such a good question. You know, I think it goes back to the old comment, like when you're brainstorming the and versus the, you know, the but. So how could, you know, the the how might we re-envision a hospital and do it in a way that doesn't, you know, take down our economy? Um, <laughs> I don't know. The barriers to innovation, I think, are mostly in our minds. And if we could let ourselves just explore and try. The other, the other piece that makes it really hard, I would say, is you can't, back to Sasha's discussion with you the other day, you can't innovate in a vacuum. And so identifying those incumbents that you could partner with to show that your crazy idea may actually work. And so it's partnering in the healthcare system is really hard. And I'd say that's probably one of the biggest barriers to innovating in healthcare, that just negotiating with a healthcare system to to try something could take 12 months. And by that time, your company's out of money if it's early stage, right? So how do you identify those incumbents who are willing to partner with you and try new things because they know that they need to? Interesting. I like that. What a way to close up. Leslie, thanks for your time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great fun on my side too. Awesome. And for all our listeners out there, thank you for listening to Definitively Speaking, a Definitive Healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Bill Michella, the founder and CEO of Populi, a healthcare commercial intelligence company targeting providers and delivery networks. Definitive Healthcare recently acquired Populi, and I've invited Bill to come on the podcast to talk about the challenges facing healthcare delivery systems and providers. I promise he won't try to sell you anything. But Bill has found and founded and sold two companies that serve the provider market. So he's got some really unique insight into both the provider market and what it takes to start a company that serves the provider market. I hope you'll join us. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care, stay healthy, and remember, it's never too late to innovate.